Lord, it's springtime and there's lots going on. I pray that in the midst of that, we don't forget you. Lord, you are what life is all about, whether it's Palm Sunday and Easter or Christmas or the 4th of July. Life is about knowing you. And I pray that as we look in the scripture this morning that you can clarify for us again the ways in which or the qualities in which our life is all wrapped up in you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you guys are like me at all or like uh, humans in all times on the earth, especially Christians though, uh, you can probably look at your life and you'd see times or events or issues or episodes where you had an expectation that something good was going to happen and it doesn't. Or the flip side, that you hope to avoid something difficult or maybe even disastrous, and you didn't. You, you had a hope or an expectation for good or bad to avoid evil or get something good, and it falls through, and you're disappointed. And you kind of wonder what to do with that. And especially as a Christian, take this a step further. Let's say that as far as you can determine, you're praying to God and you're asking God to do something that as far as you can tell is in God's will. You're asking God to to do something that you have a reasonable basis to expect He would want to do. And so you pray along that line, God, please do this or God, please keep this from happening. And the time comes and God does not answer the way you thought. He would, or maybe even the way you thought he was committed to. And again, maybe for very rational, reasonable expectations you had. What do you do with that? How do you, how do you hold hope on one hand and, and maybe disappointment afterwards, and how do you reconcile those together? The take we're going to have on Palm Sunday this morning is, is hopefully a little bit of an answer to these questions. How do we hold both of these things at the same time? Hope that God will come in and deliver us save us, or provide for us in some way, along with maybe those times, those disappointments, maybe more frequently than we'd like to think about, in which he doesn't come in and do what we thought he was going to. He doesn't come in and save us or deliver us the way we thought he would. What do we do with that? This Palm Sunday, we're going to start with a text that's a Palm Sunday text in John 12. And let me just tell you where we're going. We're going to start in John 12. Then we're going to go back to John 11. And then we're going to go to Mark 11. This is for a couple of reasons. We're in John 12 because it's the Palm Sunday text. So we're going to start there on Palm Sunday. And by the way, you remember, we're working our way through John's Gospel. So we've been in chapter 10. Last time we were in John's Gospel, we finished chapter 10. And in chapter 10, we had the Good Shepherd Discourse, if you remember. And it's winter. It's the Feast of Hanukkah in Jerusalem. Jesus has that discussion. And then things go a little south, and the Jews try to stone him. So he leaves that area. When we pick up in John 12 today, the seasons have changed. It's spring. It's about our time of year again. Spring season. And Jesus is back in Jerusalem again, this time for the feast of Passover. So this is where we start. And then about halfway through, we change gears. And we go back towards Hanukkah as we pick up John 11. This sounds a little disjointed. I hope it doesn't come across this way. I hope it's all clear. But I think you'll see as we put the passages together, there's a an important common element that I think for Palm Sunday especially is helpful. So we'll start in John 12 and then go back in John 11. 
John 12, starting at verse 12, and by the way, as we pick up the Palm Sunday passage, uh, Jesus and his crew have just left the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany, just a couple miles east of Jerusalem. So they've just left that home that we'll pick up again in John 11 as they've come to Jerusalem for the feast. And remember, the feast here is Passover. Jerusalem would be packed. Even on this Sunday before Passover, later in the week, the Jews would come in early to go through the purification rituals. So Jerusalem would already be packed. It would be full now and it would only get more crowded as the week progresses. So John 12, 12, the next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, same thing we sang this morning, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Don't be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Listen to what they're shouting. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Hosanna. If you have a study Bible or if you have a Bible with references, you can look at this verse and you'll see that this is all straight out of Psalm 118, which I'll read just a little bit of here. Psalm 118, though, is one of the Hallel Psalms. It's one of the Psalms that the Jews would routinely every year sing as they went up to Jerusalem from whatever part of Israel they lived in. They would sing the Psalms of Hallel, of Hallelujah, praise, on their way up to Jerusalem for the feasts. So these folks, these crowds, have been singing Psalm 118 as they've made their way to Jerusalem. And when Jesus comes in, they basically pick out phrases from that song and they shout them to Jesus. This is is important to get. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. Listen to just a few of the verses out of this psalm to gain some sense about what they're thinking. What are the thoughts in their mind as they shout these phrases and words when Jesus comes in? Psalm 118, 5 through 7. In my anguish I cried to the Lord, and He answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me, I won't be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me, He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. Psalm 118, verses 25 through 27. O Lord, save us. O Lord, Lord here is Yahweh, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine upon us. With bows, just like this, with bows in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. When this crowd is yelling these phrases, they're yelling the phrases they've been singing, and now they're putting them on Jesus. And they're saying of Jesus, you're the one who's come in the name of the Lord to set us free. You're the Messiah that Israel's been waiting for who's come to deliver us from our oppressors and set us free. And so we cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, the son of David, the one who would be David's descendant and who would rule the throne of Israel forever. They're saying as Jesus comes through, you're it. We've been singing these words out of Psalm 118 every year for generations And today, Palm Sunday, when we see Jesus right in, we sing them with an entirely new meaning because we see the one that we understand 
is the son of David. And so we shout out again, Hosanna to the son of David. They're welcoming Israel's Messiah into their gates after 1,400 years or so from their previous deliverance. And think of this too. It's Passover. So what are these guys thinking back to? Forget Jesus here. Forget Palm Sunday for just a minute. What are they thinking back to? They're thinking back 1,400 years to when God had sent a deliverer to the Jewish nation in Egypt. And they're thinking back to a Moses, the man God sent to deliver Israel in that time from slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. They are remembering, they're celebrating that first Passover, God's deliverance. Said a man named Moses, delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, brought them out. Here comes Jesus. And we've been through this, but you know, he's been performing these miracles. And in John 10, the discussion was, one of the points was, will anyone do more miracles than this guy? He must be the Messiah. So the discussion's been going on. And it culminates in Palm Sunday when the crowd see Jesus coming in on the donkey. And by the way, this is Zechariah 9. It's a direct quote. It's a direct reference out of Zechariah 9 in which Israel's king would come to them humble riding on a donkey. And here's Jesus doing it. And the crowds have been wondering, many of them, is he really it or not? Do we wait for someone else? And here on Palm Sunday, they get it. He's it. And those words we've been singing when we were kids and our parents sang and their parents sang, today we've seen them fulfilled. Here he is riding in. This is it. He's it. The term Hosanna used here is interesting too. You know in this song when we sing Hosanna, Hosanna, it sounds like uh, just an exclamation of praise. And, and on one hand it became to be that, but it's certainly a lot more than that. In Hebrew, you guys know what Hosanna means, right? It means, in fact, this is out of uh, verse 25 of Psalm 118. When we read, O Lord, Yahweh, save us, the Hebrew would read Yahweh, Hosanna. So when this crowd cries, Hosanna, they're not just whooping and celebrating. They're actually making an appeal. They're saying, Yahweh, save us now. Yahweh God, Israel's God, deliver us and do it now. So their shouts of praise to Jesus are shouts of praise on one hand, and it's an appeal and a prayer on the other. Now remember the Jews, this Palm Sunday, they're in Israel and they're in the land, but what's life like? They're under an oppressor. The Romans rule them, and the religious leaders do too. The Jews of this day live under oppression. The taxes, the politics from the temple, we've looked at all this before. This is, this is a tough time. They would love to think that God is going to send them a deliverer and do it now. So when they see Jesus come in and he's performed the miracles and they've wondered, some have wondered, some have already believed and they attribute to him Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9. They're saying, we get it. You're it and this is our cry. Save us and do it now. Hosanna, save us now. So what happens? What happens with the Palm Sunday cries and the prayer of God save us now or deliver us now. What happens to that? We'll hold that thought and hold that question for a minute and we'll come back to that in a little bit. We're going back now to John 11. So we went from John 10, winter, Hanukkah in Jerusalem, John 12, 
spring, Passover in Jerusalem. Now we're going back. This is what I mean. I hope this isn't confusing. We're going back towards Hanukkah. Back to chapter 11, verse 1. And hold the question, what happened to those Palm Sunday hosannas? What happened to the cry, God save us and do it now? Back in John 11, if you remember at chapter 10, it ended, the Jews tried to stone Jesus. So what did he do? He left. Seems prudent. And he went probably north, doesn't tell us specifically, but apparently went back north out of the Jerusalem Judean area. That's where we pick up at verse 1, John 11. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, that little town Jesus had just left in John 12. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That occurs later in chapter 12. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Okay, so here's the picture. Back in John 11. Jesus has been in Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home before. They're friends. They're good friends. It's why they can say, hey, the one you love, your good friend is sick. So would you come down and heal him? And remember, they've seen Jesus heal all kinds of people, lame people, blind people. They know all they have to do is ask their friend, their good friend Jesus, to come down and their brother will be made well. So they send the word up to wherever Jesus is at and say, hey, Lazarus is sick. Would you come down and take care of him? Heal him like you have all these other people. And so Jesus says, well, let's hang around for two more days. Let's hang around for two more days. Can you imagine if my daughter's lying sick in bed and she says, Dad, uh, could you get me some Tylenol? And I say, sure, hon. And two days later, I come back with some Tylenol and water. You'd think I was a little negligent, like I was missing something, like something was, was not right, something was amiss. And, and it would be if I was the one doing this. In, in Jesus' case, you know, we, we're asking ourselves, what's the deal? What gives? They've, they've made kind of a minor plea for something from Jesus that's no problem for him to do because he's done it all the time. And, and they've hosted him in the past. They have a loving relationship with him. What, you know, shouldn't be a problem. Jesus, we've got a need. Would you come down and meet it? Jesus' response is to stay put for two more days. It's as if, in the language of Palm Sunday, Mary and Martha do this. They say, Lord, Hosanna. Lord, come down and save us now. Heal our brother now. Would you please come on down? Lord, Hosanna, come down and save us. Jesus' response is to stay right where he's at for two more days. Now, John's clear in this passage. If you look in verse 5, John doesn't want us to get confused on this issue. He says Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. There's no confusion here on Jesus' attitude towards Martha and Mary and Lazarus. None at all. Jesus loves them. So, as we're reading the text, whatever confusions in our mind, this shouldn't be one of them, that whatever's going on is for the lack of love. John tells us clearly, nope, Jesus loves them. He loves them. So whatever's going on, it can't be for a lack of love that Jesus stays where he's at instead of going down 
to answer their hosanna, their plea for help for their brother. Jesus tells his disciples, it's okay, this is a story with a happy ending. This won't end in death. This is a story with a happy ending. That's what he tells his disciples where he's at. But put yourself in Mary and Martha's shoes. They're not there, and they don't hear that. They don't know the story has a happy ending. All they know is this. We sent a message up to our friend Jesus, the one we believe is the Savior and Messiah. And we've asked him to come down and to save our brother Lazarus. And all we know is he ain't here. We made a plea. We figured it was a legitimate plea based on a relationship or knowledge of who he is, something he can do easily. Seems like this is something Jesus would want to do. He loves our brother. Come down and heal him. All sounds reasonable. And all they know is he's nowhere to be found. In other words, Mary and Martha cry out, Hosanna, God save us and do it now. And Jesus does not write in. He does not show up. Verse 7, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day won't stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It's when he walks by night that he stumbles, then he has no light. Just briefly here, the disciples look and they say, gosh, this doesn't seem like a prudent thing. In fact, when Jesus hangs out for two days, they probably assume he's doing it because he's afraid to go back to the south where they want to stone him. They don't even question that the the record doesn't tell us that they wonder, why don't we go down? When Jesus says, let's go down, they say, is this really a smart thing? They wanted to kill you last time and you want to go back now. But Jesus says it's light. He says, even though to you guys, to your eyes, it doesn't look like this is a good time to go back, I understand that this is what my Father has for me. So for me, it's like working in the daylight. It's the daytime. It's time to be out in the field working. It's not night, even though it looks like that to you. It looks like the wrong time to be going out to work. Jesus says, nope, my dad's working. I'm working with him. It's, it's as if it's the daytime and it's time to work. So you've got that wrong. Verse 11 After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, again, I think this is an excuse saying you really don't need to go down. We don't need to go down with you either. Uh, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. He doesn't need us, Lord. He's sleeping great. He'll sleep it off. He'll get better. He told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Lazarus has died. Jesus says he's glad. I'm thinking, some friend. We we all need more friends like this. You've died? How happy. But he tells his disciples why he's glad. It has nothing to do with Lazarus' death as such. He says he's glad because... The Father will be glorified through this because the Son will be glorified. And you remember, we've talked about this. The Father loves to heap honor on the Son. The Son loves to heap honor on the Father. Jesus says this is actually a good thing because I will be honored, and that honors the Father. And he also says, you'll believe. Now, the disciples, clearly, they believe in Jesus already. He's asked them questions about this. They've responded, we know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. John 6, Peter says, where else would we go? We know who you are. They already believe. But in some fashion, whatever happens with Lazarus, Jesus understands will help them believe more 
or more fully or in a way they have not before, it will build up their faith in Christ and it will honor Christ and the Father. So for those reasons, Jesus says, this is a good thing. I'm glad it's happened, not because Lazarus died, not because Mary and Martha have gone through this sadness and loss and separation, all of which is very real. Jesus knows this will be reversed, of course, but they don't. So he's not glad for the sadness and for the confusion and for the sense of loss, but he's glad because in the end, it will glorify the Father, it will glorify the Son, and it will build up faith in others. By the way, just as an aside, Thomas, like Peter, in my mind, often gets a bad rap. You know how Peter, he's the precocious one whom we like to say, you know, the hot-headed guy who's hot and cold, etc. And Thomas, what do we remember Thomas for? We call him doubting Thomas because of what John records later. He's not with the disciples when Jesus appears post-resurrection and he says, if I can't see him, if I can't touch him, if I can't put my hand in his wounds, I won't believe. Look at Thomas here. This guy of the 12 says, hey, let's go and die with him. They really think this is the end. And Thomas's thought is, and I'm going to run and save my hide. I refuse to believe in Jesus the Messiah. He says... Let's go and die with him. You and I could do a lot worse than be a Thomas. And remember, we'll talk at the end as we wind up about real senses of loss. You've got to remember for a guy like Thomas who did love Jesus, clearly loved Jesus, and thought he was willing to go die with Jesus, after Jesus' death, emotionally, all his hopes are gone. And the disciples don't get anything before the resurrection. They don't get it. And Thomas is confused and he suffered loss he doesn't know which side's up and which side's down and he says i'm not going to believe it you know basically i'm not going to open myself back up to that possibility unless jesus physically shows me so i think we shouldn't judge thomas too harshly look at him in john 11 and he's a sterling example but here's mary and martha they cry to jesus hosanna jesus friend pal buddy you've stayed in our house we've fed you put you up Come down and do this little thing for us. Save our brother. Heal him. Make him well. And Jesus doesn't come. They cry Hosanna and nobody rides in to save them. Let me ask you or ask yourself as we kind of make this a little bit more personal. How often do you tell God how he should come in and take care of the issues in your life? You know, uh, pray. You know, we pray. Lord, um, this could be a million and one things. Lord, would you come in? I've got this issue in my life. Would you just come in and if you'll do this at this time, uh, everything will be cool. Just do it my way on my timetable and everything will be great. We don't think of it that way, but when we pray oftentimes, isn't that what we're doing? We're telling God, we're saying, Hosanna, Lord, we've got this little issue, we've got this little problem. So if you'll come in and you'll save us now, everything will be groovy and life is good and, and won't that be wonderful, won't that be nice? And, you know, oftentimes, frankly, we'll pray biblical prayers in what we think is the right motivation and the right scenario. You you know what I'm saying? Where as far as we can tell, just like those Palm Sunday crowds, there's a reason to say, God, save us now. Because here's Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's on the donkey. He's the king. And so he's riding in. And so this is it. This is the time. 
And sometimes we say, well, Lord, this is the scripture and this is the setting. And so, gosh, this must be your will. And so I'm praying according to your will. How many times do you do that? You cry Hosanna. You say, I think I've got it, Lord. And you make the request, Lord, save me from this occurring or Lord, provide this for me. And you pray. Nothing happens. And Jesus, as it were, sits on his hands and doesn't show up. What do you do with that? How do you hold the hope and the confusion at the same time? What do you do if you're the Palm Sunday crowd? What do you do if you're Mary and Martha? What do you do when you pray and God doesn't come in and deliver? Most of us suffer pain uh, physically, emotionally. It could be spiritual pain. We, we pray to God, you know, deliver us from this pain, whatever it is, and, and maybe he doesn't. Or maybe you're unmarried, and for you, God's will is that you find that spouse, that you get married, and you say, Hosanna, God, save me and get me married. This is a joke, but it's not, because I've known lots of single people that this is the deal. Or maybe you're married and you say, Hosanna, Lord, save me from my marriage. That could happen too, maybe in this room. Or maybe you're married and you want to have kids in the worst way and you pray that God will deliver those kids into your hands and he doesn't. Maybe you've got kids and you say, God, save me from my kids. It could go either way, couldn't it? It could be a million and one things in which you say to God, Lord, I think I know what your will is. I know who you are. I believe in you. I know what you've said about a certain thing. It sure looks to me like this is a good time for you to do ABC or do this thing in this time frame. Lord, I think I'm with you. Come in and save me now. Related to Lazarus, Jesus makes it clear that he doesn't go down immediately and save Lazarus from a sickness because he has something bigger and better in mind. Right? That's the deal. He says it's to the glory of God and it's to increase faith in others that I don't go down right now. It's a a story with a happy ending, but the ending is bigger and better than it would have been if I'd gone down immediately. Back to the Palm Sunday question. What did Jesus' Palm Sunday look like related to answering that cry to Jesus, save us and do it now? What what happens? John actually doesn't even tell us. John just gives us the glorious entrance back to the city and then he kind of just stops. Mark tells us this, Mark 11, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, just put this in context. Jesus, the the question's been raging in Jerusalem for a long time. Is he the Messiah or not? Palm Sunday comes. He rides in. The crowds are thronging the lane to the city. They're crying out, Hosanna. They're singing Psalm 118. They're saying, you're it. And what's Jesus do? He goes up to the temple. He looks around. He says, gosh, it's late. It's bedtime. And he goes home. Lies down for the night. What's with that? Some deliverer. Some deliverance. What a washout. Starts so high, my expectations as high as they get. Jesus walks in, takes a look around, walks out, goes home. I suppose he has his dinner and goes to bed. What an anticlimactic ending to Palm Sunday. Jesus didn't save the Jews the way they wanted to be saved. And the way they thought, their expectations were not irrational they weren't out of line 
They didn't see the whole picture and they didn't get the thing about the suffering servant. They didn't see everything. But there was real reasons. There were rational reasons for them to think Jesus was coming in to save them. And he didn't. But think about this. Just like Lazarus, Jesus said, I'm going to do something bigger and better than heal a sick man. He said, I'm going to raise a dead man. And with Jesus on Palm Sunday, the Jewish hope wasn't fulfilled. But think of this. Jesus is crucified later that week. Just say that he had brought in the kingdom of God that day, Palm Sunday, in Jerusalem. What would that have meant, really? It would have been something like this. He would have instituted the kingdom of God on earth and those Jews would have happily lived in his kingdom and died and done what? Gone to hell forever, right? Bearing the penalty of their own sin. If Jesus had brought in the kingdom on Palm Sunday, it would have been this short, brief victory or success and then it would all be over. It would be a taste of heaven and then eternity without God and without Christ and without hope, Paul's language in Ephesians. He didn't bring in the kingdom then because he had something bigger and better in mind. So Palm Sunday begins that last week in which he actually dies for the sins of the Jewish world. But then also think of this. Jesus is going to come back in the future. If you read the Gospels, read the end of the story, Revelation, whatever, he's coming back. What's happened, though, between Palm Sunday and the return of Christ to Jerusalem? It's the age you and I live in. It's called the church age or the age of the Spirit. Guys, if he would brought in the kingdom 2,000 years ago, we wouldn't be here. The age of the spirit of the church is part of the bigger, better plan he had 2,000 years ago. He died for the sins of the world and for the sins of the Jewish nation, but he also instituted or inaugurated after that this period in which he brings in people from every race, tribe, nation, tongue on earth. This was part of the bigger, better plan. So if he brought in the kingdom, Palm Sunday... It would be like healing Lazarus. It'd be okay as far as it went, but it wouldn't be as good as it could have been. He had something bigger, and he had something better in mind. He had their eternal redemption in mind. That's one thing. But he also had you and I in mind because it's in this period in between Palm Sunday and the return of Christ. It's in between that you and I live, and it's in between in which God has saved millions and millions of people from every skin color, every tribe, every continent on the earth has happened because he didn't bring in the kingdom on Palm Sunday. God didn't answer those cries of Hosanna 2,000 years ago because he had something bigger and better in mind. And he didn't hurry down to heal Lazarus, a sick man, because he intended to raise a dead man from the grave. And if God can reverse, in Lazarus' case, the worst thing that could ever happen to any of us, that is death, then it's a pretty good indication that he can save us from whatever the worst case scenario in any of our minds is, too. If he can take care of Lazarus' problem, he can take care of your problems and mine, too. You know, we cry in our prayers all the time. We may not say Hosanna, but we're saying God help and God help me now. God, come in and and take care of this thing and take care of it now. And I would say, based on my experience and the experience of many, that for the most part, God doesn't answer those prayers, certainly not in the way we want him to or in the time we want him to. 
And the question remains, what do I do with that? In saying any of this, I wouldn't want to minimize the real sense of loss and pain and confusion any of us go through when we really cry out to God for help in something we don't see it come or we we don't see it in the time frame we, we thought we needed to see it in. If you put yourself in Mary and Martha's shoes and you're not with Jesus up north and he's telling you there's a happy ending, all you know short term is that your brother died and you you didn't think he needed to. And for you and I, oftentimes, when we pray and things don't turn out, all we know is we thought it would be like this, and instead it's death. We thought God would kind of come in and take care of a healing, and and it died. We didn't get life. We didn't get victory. We got what sure looks like death. And the frustration, and I'd say the confusion, the sense of loss, it's all real. There's nothing unreal about it. Mary and Martha really suffered loss. Their brother really died. They really went through the real loss, the real grief related to that. And you and I oftentimes, we cry out to God. We think it's according to his will. There's legitimate reasons why we think God might want to do this thing, and he doesn't. And there's death instead of life, and you're wondering, what do I make of all this? What do I make of all this? I also don't want to communicate a trite idea that there are always happy endings. Um, you know, if you're an American, if you're a Christian in America, you and I live with very narrow frames of reference. If you interpret life through your frame of reference as an American in this time frame, the time that we live, we have a skewed view of life. If you're a Christian in China today or Muslim countries today, your view of life would be entirely different. Your expectations would be entirely different. And Christians throughout the ages and Christians around the world today have very different expectations oftentimes than we do. Our expectations are different. Many Christians throughout the ages and today, they'll cry Hosanna about particular things in their life and their life will begin and end without God answering those prayers. That's true for many of us, most of us, probably in many elements of our life. So I don't want to say that you pray to God and he doesn't answer today and that means a week later he rides back in and he heals your brother. He raises him from the dead or he does whatever. We don't know. Many times he doesn't. Many times we're going to carry our hopes to the grave. So I don't mean to communicate any of this in a way that's a trite answer to say there's always this happy ending in our lifetime. There isn't. Our hope has to go beyond this lifetime. I do think that's why it's helpful, though, to put uh, Palm Sunday kind of expectations in an Easter Sunday kind of frame of reference. You know, uh, Palm Sunday leads to the crucifixion. And Lazarus' sickness leads to death. In both instances, the hope of victory and life looks like it is dead, buried, and gone. And this isn't an Easter message, but you've got to remember in both cases, death looked like the end, but it wasn't. Because Lazarus is raised from the dead. And Jesus rises from the dead And what looked like hopes buried forever weren't. Those hopes were resurrected. They were brought back 
even from the dead. And if you and I entertain hopes in this life that don't get met in this life, it doesn't mean that those hopes are dead and buried forever any more than Lazarus or Jesus were. We don't know. But we know a few things. We know this. Jesus loves us. So if he doesn't answer our Palm Sunday hosannas, save us and save us now, it's not for a lack of love. You don't have to scratch your head and say, I thought the Lord loved me, but I guess he doesn't because he didn't come in and do what I thought he would. It's not for a lack of love. We also know this. Generally, in your life and mine, God's plans are bigger and better than whatever we had in mind was. It's like Jesus. If he'd started the kingdom on Palm Sunday, it would have been good, but it wouldn't have been as good as his plans were. If he'd healed Lazarus from a sickness, it would have been good, but it wouldn't have been as good as raising Lazarus from the dead. And if he answered your prayers and mine sometimes, it would be good, but it wouldn't be as good as the plans he has for us. He sees things in in ways we can't. And we tend to seek pain relief. We want God to save us now because we don't want the pain. God, frankly, he's like a surgeon who says, I'm willing to hurt you to make it better. God generally doesn't deal with pain relief the way we want him to. He's willing to allow the pain if it means something better. We seek pain relief. He's seeking something bigger and better than pain relief. So on Palm Sunday, whatever's going on in your life, remember that for the most part, when we cry out Hosanna, it's not for lack of love that God doesn't answer those prayers. Generally, he has something bigger and better in mind. And even if it looks like death has put an end to your hopes for whatever, in God's economy, death is not the end. You know, Easter Sunday is proof. Death is just the beginning. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck by the fact that I could pray to you every day and ask you to do something simply because, in my view, it would be a good thing. It would be pleasant would save me from a minor inconvenience or major frustration and loss. Lord, help us to choose to believe that your Palm Sundays, those, those times when our expectations rise and then they fall because it doesn't appear you're doing things the way we thought you would. Lord, help us not to doubt your goodness or your love. Lord, thanks that your plans are bigger and better than ours. And Lord Jesus, thanks that as surely and as certainly as you rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago on a little donkey, you promised to return in Revelation 19 on a great white war horse. And Lord, I believe from both that passage in Zechariah 14 that you promised that we'll be with you, that indeed your plan is bigger and better than what we have in mind. Father, because you've displayed your love for us in Jesus Christ, giving your Son, your only Son, so that we could be joined to you forever, we place our expectations and our shouts and our cries for Hosanna, God save us, in your hands. We entrust ourselves to your care again, as surely as Jesus did on the cross. We say, Lord, into your hands we commit our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen.